So right after I was asked to preach this sermon on the practices and attitudes that promote unity in the church, I opened my Facebook feed to see a quote that had been shared by someone I knew from years past. And it was one of those viral theology memes, the kind that said kind of in this pithy way, kind of shocking, trying to jar us into discovering some biblical truth that we've all seemed to have abandoned. And it said this, sometimes the most Christian thing that you can do is leave the church. Now this person had experienced a lot of hurt in the church and had been hurt particularly by some leaders and had walked away from a particular congregation apart just to heal. And I recognize that sometimes there are toxic situations where you need to extricate yourself from a specific congregation. But where I was more concerned was in her next comment because she hadn't just left a particular congregation, she had actually said she was leaving the church. In her words, to deconstruct her understanding of the church. And this really summed up what she felt. Sometimes the most Christian thing you can do is leave the church. And immediately it started garnering all of these likes and you started seeing these comments to the effect of, you know, we just need Jesus. We don't need the church. And my first thought was, well, time out before we have this conversation. I think you need to sit in on my church class at school. But honestly, in that moment, I began to wonder, what does a sermon on the practices and attitudes that promote unity in the church say to someone who's really been hurt by the church and has walked away? Too little, too late? Or as we've seen so much more, it doesn't really matter because I don't really need the church, do I? And the more I pondered it, I began thinking, well, what does this kind of sermon say to those who feel like the church is optional as long as we just hold on to Jesus? What does it say to those that don't feel like the church is anything different than just a club that we can voluntarily join and leave? What does it say to those that don't feel like church is a central part of their life or culture? Research tells us that after the pandemic, people aren't coming back to the church. And in fact, just recently, last week, the 2022 American Bible Society State of the Bible report was released. And this report indicates that among Gen Z, Millennials, and Gen X, who say that they have a strong personal commitment to Christ, that that is important to them, 66% are not attending church even once a month. Do we really need the church to love Jesus? I find it a particularly pertinent question when we think about how church movements are fracturing right now. My boss, um, Ed Stetzer, calls this time in the church the great sort, that we're in this moment of cultural convulsion, if you will, and evangelicals are kind of sorting themselves out, but it's not based on what we believe. That hasn't changed. We're just sorting ourselves out based on political stances or cultural beliefs. And many of us across the board are disturbed by the witness of the church in the world, but how we're carving ourselves up in the church leaves all of us pointing our fingers at different directions, decrying everybody else's faults. And wherever we're standing, there's somebody that's always too conservative, too culturally compromised, too nationalistic, too woke. Now, last week, Father Kevin preached an extremely convicting sermon that says that we can't build up walls with sectors of the church and the people in the church that we don't like. But what if truly deep down, we don't think that church really matters all that much? Why worry about unity if we don't need the church to love Jesus? 
Aren't we better off just being nice people who love Jesus and can just leave the church behind? Couldn't that actually be a better witness in the world? Is the most Christian thing we can do be to leave the church? And as I pondered these questions and thoughts, and I, I've seen them just everywhere, it struck me that perhaps these questions or thought, and thoughts were the wrong ones because they start from the wrong center point. That they actually put the individual in the center. That salvation is personal, and it is about what God does for me, which then makes church something that is supposed to serve and work for me. And we put ourselves in the center of the, of the conversation. What I think we do is we fail to understand that God has a purpose and a role for the church in the world, which means that maybe, just maybe, God has a purpose and a role for us being in the church. And as I read the book of Ephesians over and over, what I notice is that Paul's conversation about the church doesn't start with the do's and don'ts of unity. It doesn't start with a list of practices that we're supposed to do. It doesn't start with how we feel or what we think or what we do. Paul starts his argument way back at the beginning with God and God's mission in the world, and the role and the purpose of the church in that mission. And I think when we start our conversation back here, it's going to make all the difference in the world. Now, our passage in Ephesians 4 opens with Paul saying this, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Now, Paul here is talking to the church. I want you to get this. He's not talking to individual people. He's actually talking to a collective. And so he's saying, look, in light of everything that I have been saying in this book, I am calling you, I am begging you collectively, lead a life worthy of your collective calling. And so as we read the, um, this from Paul, we're forced to go back into Ephesians to say, well, what does Paul say about the calling of the church? What do we discover that says we should live our life worthy of that calling? When we go back to Ephesians 1, we see that Paul argues that God's mission for the world has always been in God's mind. That from the very beginning, before he even created the world, God had predetermined to seek the flourishing of creation, that men and women in creation would feel his shalom and experience his blessings. And Paul doesn't explicitly explain that intervening space between the announcement of God's plan and its fulfillment in Christ. But as we read scripture, we can see that from the very beginning, Adam and Eve were entrusted with participating in God's mission, that as image bearers, they were supposed to be in relationship with one another, in relationship with God, and they were to rule the world in such a way that it would be fully representative of God's rule. They were to grow and multiply and diversify and seek the flourishing of all creation. And sadly, they failed. And yet God doesn't give up on his mission. He not only hints back to them that, yes, his mission is still going forward, but even when people continue to fail, God reiterates his mission to Noah after the flood. And when they fail, God reiterates his mission to Abraham after Babel. And he says to Abraham, look, this nation that is coming from you is going to be a nation that I have chosen. And God chooses this nation not because of any good thing that they did, but because God wanted to reveal himself to the world through the ways in which Israel lived in the world. They were to be a kingdom 
of priests. Not a kingdom with priests, a kingdom of priests, which means that as a nation, they were supposed to bring God's word to the world, to mediate it to the world, and they were supposed to draw the world back to God in worship through the ways in which Israel lived in holiness in the world. And, and their ways that they were supposed to bless the world was not about their own prosperity. It was supposed to be for the blessing of all nations. And when Israel fails, God enters creation himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And through his life, his death, and his resurrection, Jesus not only gets God's mission back on track, but he wins that decisive victory over sin and death, and he begins that work of establishing God's rule and reign once and for all. And it's at this point that Paul picks up his argument in Ephesians, and he says, look, God's plan has always been to bring everything in creation, everything in heaven and on earth, together under the rule and reign of Christ Jesus. And as part of this plan... God still has a chosen people. Only now, instead of it being this ethnic group of Jews, God has now determined that it's going to be a new people made up of Jew and Gentile. And Paul is adamant about this point. Jesus is our peace. Though Jews and Gentiles have lived in hostility with one another, Jesus' death breaks down that wall of hostility and that has separated them, and through his resurrection, Jesus inaugurates a brand new kingdom in which Jew and Gentile come together into one people. So that as Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, all of us, Jews and Gentiles, may come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. And then Paul breaks out into this just fantastic imagery about what this means. That for those who embrace Christ, we are now citizens of God's holy people. We are members of God's family. We are God's house. We are joined together like bricks in a building, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. We are now one body. And I think this imagery tells us so much. It tells us first that the church exists because God called and created the church to be in Christ. We didn't choose to self-organize. God himself is the one who orchestrates this gathering. We were chosen, Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, and we were chosen to be in Christ. And when we find ourselves in Christ, when we declare him Lord, this imagery tells us it's not an individual thing. To confess Jesus Christ is not just about stamping our passport for heaven. Through Christ, we experience forgiveness and transformation and new creation, but this isn't just for our own sake. To confess Jesus Christ is also to be placed by God into God's people, into God's family, into God's house, into God's temple, into Christ's body. This is collective imagery. Individual stones are not a temple until they're built together. Individual body parts don't mean much until they are knit together into one body. Individual people are not a people, individual persons. We can't become a people until we're gathered together with other persons. And there really is no other way. Being in Christ means being in community. It is one Lord, one faith, one baptism that draws us into this community. Because God is not in the business of creating many bodies, many temples, many people. No, it is many persons coming together as one people of God. It is many stones becoming one temple of the Lord. It is many body parts becoming one body. And yet in this collective imagery, 
It is also important to note that the many come together in such a way that their diversity is not erased. Everyone brings their own gifts and backgrounds and strengths and abilities, and they are enabled by the Spirit to use these for the sake of the whole. It is Jew and Gentile coming together without erasing their cultures and their backgrounds and their differences. It is, if you will, a Catholic gathering in which there is room for all people and nations and races and cultures and abilities. It is unity and diversity. But the only way that unity and diversity and coming together into one body and one temple is possible is for those in the church to share the same foundation and spirit. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, together we are God's house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. The church that God is crafting is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It is headed by Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. And it is a church that Paul says is growing in holiness and becoming a place where God lives by his spirit. It may not be perfected yet. And Paul reminds us that the coming together of many people is a process that requires work and continual growth and holiness. But not through a rote list of do's and don'ts, but through the work of the spirit who joins us in Christ and transforms us into a dwelling in which God lives. And so the church, Paul essentially argues in Ephesians 1 and 2, is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Sound familiar? Now, when we get to Ephesians 3, Paul begins recapping everything that he's been saying. We find Paul in this moment just marveling at God's Plan, feeling a bit awestruck that he's actually been chosen to reveal this plan. He calls it a secret plan that he's been able to share. And he says this plan is this, that the Gentiles have equal share with the Jews in all the riches inherited by God's children. Both groups have believed the good news, he says. And so both are now part of the same body and enjoy together the promise of blessing through Christ Jesus. And in his marveling at God's plan, Paul finally reveals the purpose of of God's plan, the calling of the church. And I want you to get this. Chapter 3, verse 10. He says, God's purpose in bringing Jews and Gentiles together into one body, one people, God's purpose in this is to show God's wisdom in all its rich variety to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. They will see this when Jews and Gentiles are joined together in the church. This was God's plan from all eternity. And it has now been carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, this is huge, and I want you to get this. The church is the place where God displays his power and his diversity and his wisdom. And when people come together in the church, when we care for one another and encourage one another, when we sharpen and shape one another, when we demonstrate God's kingdom values and practices and how we serve and love and speak to one another, in that moment, we become a visible and tangible witness of God in the world. We demonstrate God's riches and diversity in all of its power, and we become in that moment a countercultural witness to the world, showing, declaring that Jesus has already won the victory despite what everybody sees in the world. This means that the church is not an afterthought. It is not a human response to God. 
The church is a central and indispensable part of God's redemptive plan in and for the world. The church matters. And so when we say yes to Jesus, it is imperative that we also say yes to participating in and championing the work of the church in and for the world. Now, the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, he draws in a lot of Old Testament imagery to describe the nature and purpose of the church. And this is what he says. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you collectively may declare the praises of him who called you individually and collectively out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you were the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so, dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your souls. Collectively live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your collective good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. What Peter tells us is this, we didn't choose God. God chose us, and he gave us a priestly role, again, to mediate God's grace to the world and to draw the world to God in worship. We are called to live prophetically in a fallen world because we belong to God and not the world. And we are collectively called to declare God's glory because God has called us out of darkness, and he has made us into a new people with a new citizenship in God's kingdom which also makes us a diaspora community that's no longer fully at home in this world. And so we're called collectively to live lives that show the world a different way. And when we are called then by God to embody God's goodness in the world, so that in seeing us, the church, the world sees Jesus and is brought along in its journey toward God. And this is exactly Paul's point. God's eternal plan has been to display the diversity and riches and power of his wisdom and kingdom through the unexpected creation of a new people out of persons that the world says don't belong together. And it is through the hard work of this community to be a unified people through the work that is done with the help and the empowerment of the spirit that God makes his greatest statement and witness to the world in our day and age. But the church that we see is not perfect, you say. <laughs> oh no, it is not. And on this side of heaven, there's never going to be a perfect church. There never has been, and there never will be. And it can be frustrating and disheartening, and I think at times that's the thing that makes us all at some point struggle with the church and think about just throwing it all away. When it gets messy, when the church isn't meeting our needs, when conflict comes, people mess up. Sometimes we just want to leave. We want to give up. When one faction of the church makes us angry or frustrated, we want to quit the whole thing to avoid association. But friends, the most Christian thing we can do is not to leave the church. The most Christian thing we can do is to fight for the church and to work as hard as we can for her unity and love. In her wonderful book, Practicing Christian Doctrines, Beth Felker Jones argues that the practice of ecclesiology, the practice of our theology of the church, is found in living faithfully in light of two competing realities. 
the visible church matters, and in a world of sin, there is no pristine church. The visible church is important because she says God uses the visible church for witness in the visibility and materiality of creation. How can the church make the grace of God known if that church can't be seen or touched? Joan says, a church that lives in the hearts is far less threatening than a visible embodied church, and it's also a much less effective witness. God uses the communal nature of the church for witness among people whom he created to be in relationships. And so we cannot, even in the midst of brokenness, give up on the visible church. Rather, we are called to love the church, to be the church, even in the midst of difficulty, even when it's proper marks, one, holy, Catholic, apostolic, are very hard to see because God has chosen to work in the world through the broken and holy reality of the church. Friends, if we believe Paul's argument that the church is central to God's mission and vital to God's witness in the world, if we're convinced of this, if every time we recite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed that we are serious about believing in one holy Catholic apostolic church, the communion of saints, then friends, we must fight for this church. We must heed Paul's begging of us that we lead a life worthy of our calling. And so it is to this end, for the sake of this calling, that Paul lays out the practices and attitudes that promote unity. And he says, I beg you, be humble and gentle always. I beg you, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves unified in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. It is to this end that Paul says we shouldn't be greedy and selfish and indebted to our own pleasures and wants. It's to this end that Paul tells us to stop telling lies, to not let anger control our lives, to get rid of all bitterness and rage and slander and all types of evil behavior, to avoid sexual immorality, impurity, greed, harsh speech that is filled with obscenities, coarse joking and foolishness, and to quit excusing these sins. And it is to this end that Paul calls us to honest speech, to honest actions, to generosity and hard work, to imitate God in everything we do, to live sacrificial lives filled with love, to be filled with thankfulness to God, and to live as people of light. Friends, we won't get this right every time, but this does not excuse our participating in the church and seeking her unity. Paul reminds us that as we make every effort to keep ourselves united in the Spirit, we do so with the Spirit's help and in the bond of peace. And who is our peace? Jesus. Jesus makes the way for us to live and work together in unity because he destroys the divisions that we try to build up. Friends, our unity matters. Practicing unity matters because God's answer to the division, the strife, the violence, the hatred, the loneliness, the financial strain, the destruction of creation, the, the lack of purpose, the worthlessness, the whatever, fill in the blank that we see rampant in the world. God's answer to all of that is the church. Think about it. When a people with a wide array of diversity and gifting and ability and privilege and power and status an ethnic and cultural background come together into one body and they demonstrate unity and love. 
They show the world a different way of living that there doesn't always have to be hostility within groups and between groups. When we speak with and about one another with love and integrity, when we encourage and bless and when needed, lovingly rebuke, when we forgive and we move forward together through conflict, we show the world a better way to engage with others even when we have differences and mess up. And we give a countercultural witness to the um, word, message in the world that says truth is relative. The truth is what I want it to be, and that I use truth as a weapon to destroy opponents. We give a countercultural witness to that. When we share our resources and sacrificially love others through acts of service, giving money, mowing lawns, uh, giving people a listening ear, visiting them, we show the world what it looks like to live in reciprocity sharing in and caring for the needs of others as they do for ours. When we wholeheartedly love God, love one another, and love life, we show a beautiful picture of relational wholeness and what the good life really is. And so leaving the church is not the most Christian thing that we can do. Fighting to maintain the unity and the love and the peace of the church is. And this is why the attitudes and practices that promote unity are not just important, they're vital. So friends of the Savior Church, God has called us to be a display of his diversity and wisdom and power. And the only way that we can lead a life worthy of this calling is to make every effort to keep ourselves unified in the Spirit. We're gonna take a few moments in silent reflection to consider how God is speaking to us. But then we're going to move into reciting the Apostles' Creed. I want to encourage us that every week as we recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, may this be a moment where collectively we're declaring our belief in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. But as we make that declaration, may it also be our declaration of a recommitment to the unity of the church and to the attitudes and the practices of unity that will move the church forward together in God's mission. <laughs>